Welcome, everybody. This is Derek. I'm joined by Rich on this week's Sixers Beat, a part of the CLNS Media Network. We welcome Rich back from the West Coast. Went on the Sixers four-game road trip where they went two and two out there in sunny California. Meanwhile, we were in the negative temperatures. Of course, you come back and now we're in the nearly 60 degrees. So you have had a you, – you picked a good road trip, which, Rich. Congratulations. Welcome Thank back, you, buddy. man. I uh, I did pick a good road trip. It was a. I'm, call, uh, I'm calling it now. By the way, I'm going on the California trip next year. Fair. Just an FYI. Fair enough. Um, yeah, it, it was a good road trip. I mean, it was. You know, you really can't beat uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco as the two middle cities uh, slash Oakland, and you know they also, were. Also, you got probably the best win of this era of Sixers basketball to witness too. That was cool. That was cool, and in in very Sixers fashion, they uh, they sandwiched two very exciting wins in between two games. They pretty much punted. I yeah. I mean, they really punted that Denver game, but you know, not playing JJ as it turns out uh, can kind of mess you up. And the result you get is seven of thirty three from three, and kind of a frustrating loss to Sacramento at the end of it. Seven and thirty-three from three, and that's even with Jimmy Butler going unconscious at the. I mean, he had what four or five of the seven made three pointers. Nobody else on the team was bringing it from the perimeter. Yeah, it was. You know, I think it's good that they got some rest for some guys. You know, I think especially the Denver game was a smart one to rest people at. Um, with what I think two days off before and after, giving Embiid that day off as well gave him a chance to kind of get his legs and his back back under him, and I think that was smart to do. Um, and that's kind of what makes this eight game. You know, they're they're two thirds of the way through this twelve game stretch. They have um, what they have Toronto, yep. yeah, Toronto, Denver, Boston, and the Lakers. Not necessarily in that order. The first t- Toronto and Denver, and then I think it might be Lakers, Boston. But they have four games left of this twelve game stretch. Five and three so far. And I think at the beginning, a lot of us would have looked at it and said, you know what, a five and seven ro- or a trip would have been. Not a success, but it wouldn't have been a catastrophe. So they're 5-3. and three. They have four games in hand. You hope they can come back and really build momentum and finish it out. But to do that, first of all, just to do that, and to go into Oracle and win that game, yeah, they don't have Clay Thompson, but they had everybody else. They only had three Hall of Famers healthy for that game. Uh, to go in there and snap their 11th game, 11 game winning streak, that was huge. But to be 5-3 and three when you've got, you know, Jimmy Butler's missed three of these eight games. Joel Embiid's missed a game. Wilson Chandler has missed two games and now will miss considerably more. Um, J.J. Redick has missed a game. I mean, Shake Milton has missed six games, and yet they've been able to power through that. And <laughs> I, I'm glad. I was worried somebody was going to take that seriously. But they've been able to power through that, play good basketball, keep their, you know, I think it was Joel Embiid who said, this will define their season. And if they can even just go two and two over the next four, end up with a seven and five, trip here that would be quite that that would set them up well because I think for as much as we talked about this being such a brutal stretch and it, it really I mean people are saying like they're doing the you know mixed case brutal schedule like it wasn't a brutal schedule no it is no and it's a brutal schedule them, you give yes. them credit for doing what they've done but I think we lost after that the Sixers schedule really isn't that tough they get they get back to a pretty easy benefit of being in the Eastern Conference but they get back to a pretty easy schedule where they can they can really compete and if they can get through the seven and five, I mean that would be just an incredible, incredible run. And quite frankly, they could do even more than that. 
I did. You know, it's funny. They uh, the two games they lost, uh, them punting, and, and I do think I'm going to write a story about this in the future. So my thoughts aren't completely hashed out about this yet. But I, I do think it's also impressive that they're able to go, you know, five and three so far while getting Embiid rest. And it to me, you know, the the logic here was pretty simple. It was with Embiid. It was. I think it was something they knew beforehand, and they said, "Well, we have games on both uh, both sides of this. You know, we have two days off on both sides, one game in five days. Let JoJo rest. Yep, we'll punt this game. Oh well, and and then he'll be back good for the uh, for the Lakers game. Of course, during the Lakers game, he has like a pretty serious scare." where he's grabbing his back after going up for an alley-oop, uh, which is just kind of the way I guess this works. So, yeah, that was smart. And then I also think, you know, I know they lost the game the other night, but to get Redick rest too. I Like that guy, you know, I, there's it seems like there's nothing wrong with him right now. He's, uh, you know, he's obviously playing very well. But to get J.J., you know, to just say, like, look, you know, we, we know you've had trouble, you know, with injuries in the past. You're a 34-year-old guy who who runs around the entire game. Like, that's smart. So the fact that they're not even, like, overextending themselves to try and do this, it's been it's been a very good road trip. And like you said, uh, that win in Oracle the other night, that was pretty cool, man. They they were pretty fired up in the locker room afterwards. I know Embiid was. I, I know Brett was pretty fired up. That, that was a... Uh, you know, despite despite the tough game in Sacramento the other night, that was definitely a feel good win. No, it definitely was, and I mean, the you know, it, it's we spent a lot of time, not just not certainly not just us. A lot of people have spent a lot of time wondering about the fit of Embiid and Simmons, and the way Simmons has taken his game to another level here over the last month and a half or so, it is. Really, we talk a lot about you know championship equity and what has to happen for the Sixers to overcome the Boston Celtics. And at the beginning of the season, that was well, Joel Embiid's got to play at an MVP caliber level. Well, here we are. He's done that. He's made that leap. The second step is Ben Simmons has to really reach his. I'm not gonna say reach his potential because he does need that jump shot to reach his maximum potential, but he has to more consistently impact the game. In all facets, in transition, on defensively, in the half court. And when they are able to run the offense through him in the post a lot, it adds such a dynamic to their team. And there are just so few teams that can match, first of all, that can match Joel in the post, just point blank. They have anyone who can do that. There aren't many teams that can do that. (laughs) But if you can add a second mismatch in there, and then also run off of him the way that you can, and cut off of him and move off of him, you know, that is, to me, the next step for them. And it's going to be interesting now, because for as tough of a road schedule as they've had, to come back now and have Toronto and Boston here in short order, it's going to be a good test. Because those are two teams that have not only, you know, slowed Ben Simmons down, and they have, but they've also slowed Joel Embiid down quite a bit, too. And they've had success defending him more than most teams do. And it'll be interesting to see whether or not they can carry over some of this success into these teams that have been problematic to them. Um, it will be a, a good test, and it's good to finally get some of these marquee games against Eastern Conference competition at the Wells Fargo Center because they really do play, I mean, maybe not so much now because they've gone out and they've won a couple of really tough road games, but through the early part of the season, they really were a much different team at home. 
Yep. Now I think they're now 13 and 14 on the road, which is it's not great, but it, it's acceptable when you're uh, you're killing everybody at home. I, I totally agree with Simmons. I, I'm just looking at the box score from that game in uh, in Oracle. 26 points uh, on 10 of 13 shooting, eight rebounds, six assists. I, he was the best player on the well. Steph was probably the best player on the. <laughs> Steph floor, did go but, ten for eighteen from three point range. But he was the best player on the Sixers by a lot, and you know to win a game when yeah, Steph is so ridiculous. By the way, that guy, <laughs> holy crap! I mean, the Sixers survived just an A plus effort from him to get a win. That that's that's also impressive. Uh, but back to Simmons, just I, I mean, just controlled the game completely. That uh, that behind the back pass to Butler was just sick. And I think that's the other encouraging thing about this is that you get an absolute stinker from Butler in that game. He was so bad on offense. Uh, and Embiid in the first half was just – I don't know what he was doing. He was throwing the ball over, He was throwing the ball all over the place. He was turning the ball over every third play. Now in the second half, he came back and realized, oh, I weigh a lot more than Kevon Looney. And <laughs> uh, on the podcast, so we record a podcast me and Mike did last night, uh, which which is lost, um, lost in the other. It's 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 gone. Uh, it, it pained me. Seventy five minute podcast, we could not recover. First time that's happened in in years. Um, but I said at one point it seemed like Joel Embiid woke up and he said, "Look, I'm Joel. I'm Joel Embiid. I'm not going to be stopped by Kevon Looney." And he really <laughs> did come out in the second half and and force his way in there. One of the all-time great quotes. I, I I love that quote from Joel. Yeah, I mean, I I had asked him that question. It was about uh, it was about his three-point shooting because he made a couple threes when the Lakers weren't guarding him. And yeah, for some reason, it seemed like he had an answer already already uh, fired up for that one. So that was <laughs> that was certainly entertaining. Um, yeah, Simmons was was just fantastic, and to see him, you know, against the team with the length and, and the defense defense of the Warriors. I forget, was Draymond guarding him for most of that game? Yeah, yep. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the best defensive players in the league. And by the way, watching Draymond live get a tee was really uh, really a treat. Like, he, he's really, he might be the modern day, it's either him or Boogie, or the modern day Rasheed Wallace, where he just, <laughs> just completely is running after a ref the entire game. And it's like, how can you not tee this guy up? Uh, yeah, so that was, I mean, what a great win. For them, and yeah, it, it's like you said, they're back home now. I, I kind of think you know, I, I, Embiid was pretty disappointed after the Sacramento game the other night, and you know, he wasn't in the I'm Joel Embiid, I'm Joel, I'm Joel Embiid <laughs> mood. He was kind of just bummed that they lost that game. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he said he was like, I hope the Raptors. Or a hundred percent. He's like, I, they, they kill us every time we play them, and I we need to beat them at full strength. So, so hopefully that's the case. I know the Raptors, uh, they're not playing on a back to back or anything. So you know we we missed out on Kawhi last time, but yeah, it, it'll be good to see them play these these Eastern juggernauts at home because they really haven't done that yet this year. And then uh, and then we got the uh, the old little trade deadline this week. Yeah, so I, I just looked up. Ben Simmons scored 14 points on four for five shooting with seven made free throws, while Draymond Green was the primary defender. So yeah, there was a, a lot of success against what was what is one of the best defenders, and like and really uh, the unbelievable type of player, defense too. By the way, 
Oh, he was. I mean, that was. I I remember in like the third quarter, I tweeted out like, "Man, Ben Simmons really taking over this game defensively." And then I looked down, he had like damn near a triple double, and I was like, "Oh yeah, well he's taking over the game in, in all facets too." Um, but that was you know a lot of success against a player who typically frustrates him, and he certainly looks a lot more aggressive. He looks like he is seeking out opportunities in the half court more. He's 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 moving better off the ball, uh, which I think is really key. Because there is a physicality to his game that he doesn't always make the most of. And if he does, I mean, it is... We forget a lot of times that Joel Embiid's still, what, 24 years old? Ben Simmons is 22? Like, who they are now and who they will be in three to four years is completely different. And how they fit will be different. And it's it's an evolution. And I feel like Ben has taken that next step. It is it is good to see it makes them very difficult. Because if what they do... I think, I think Ben Simmons has got top 10 player in the league upside even if he doesn't get a real reliable jump shot. And if you have two top 10 players, history says you you can build a sustainable contender for sure. So uh, a, a couple things on those two. It seemed like on the road trip, a, a lot. it was either the questions Brett was getting or, or even just his answers to questions that weren't always about this. He was emphasizing that he thinks uh, Ben and Joe are starting to recognize you know each other and starting to recognize their importance and and get along and they're sort of playing together. I, I will say like, you know, in the locker room after the game, those two are joking after they beat uh, Golden State and, you know, you know, that's good to see. But my question to you is, do you think that they are, you know, there's this idea now that they're starting to under, understand each other on the court a little better. Are you seeing that? A little bit. I think it's probably more that Ben is probably starting to understand himself a little bit more and yeah. where he can he can impact the game and he can impact the game in a half court. I'm not sure it's necessarily of like the two of them together, um, because I think a lot of it was just Ben needed to, to to realize where he has his mismatches and where to be aggressive. You know, I think that's probably something that evolves slowly over time, but I would say it's mostly Ben making that leap. Yeah, I agree too. They're also not going to be – as good as they are, you're not going to run spread pick and roll with those two guys the entire no. game. It's not like the, – the level of two-man game between them, like they could do it. They start – they've ran some of those snug pick and rolls recently and had success doing so. But yeah, those ga- their games are not always um, going to be in the same action, let's and just say. But that's and fine. I, and I, like, agree with, I agree with you, by the way. I think it's more – it's more just Ben kind of understanding where to attack and, you know, where to be aggressive because he's been great. And that's fine, by the way. Like, like LeBron and Wade won championships, and they weren't necessarily involved in a ton of two-man action. Like, they pick apart whoever has the weakest defender, who has the best mismatch, and go to work. Uh, you can win like that. And I think part of that is Ben learning when to attack. Part of that is Joel being okay. Like, look, I might have to be a three-point shooter and a floor spacer on this possession. Um, I'm still going to get my touches. I'm still going to have a 30-plus percent usage rate. I'm still going to, you know, get my post-ups, get my trips to the line, but this is what's best for the team. And I think I think we're seeing that balance better, which is good. I think this is uh, off-topic, but one of the funniest things I saw on the, on the road trip, you know, in, in Philadelphia, we get a decent amount of celebrities who sit courtside now, right? We, you know, the Michael Rubin row, there's, there's always some people. Uh, I think my favorite thing though is at the Staples Center, the media kind of sits similar to where we sit in Philly in the corner behind one of the baskets. Pretty good seat. Uh, my favorite thing I saw was Leonardo DiCaprio was there and he was wearing a hoodie, sunglasses, and a hat. So 
very, you know, trying to be very disguised and everything. As soon as the Sixers put that game away, he gets up from his courtside seat, you know, with his full disguise on. And I think I tapped Brian Seltzer and was like, well, that's Leo, man. That's crazy. Uh, and my favorite thing was he tried to walk up the, like, the main, the steps to the main concourse. Like, I think most of the other celebs had kind of like a back door on the floor where they could have gotten out. So I was thinking, like, does he think he's going to be able to get out of here without <laughs> people noticing who he is? And then he, he goes up two steps, and then 800 people go, Leo, Leo! <laughs> and he had to run to get out of there. Uh, I enjoyed that very much. Uh, Not the most veteran move in the world. No. As, world. as somebody who I'm sure has been to a bunch of those games. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we I, like I said, we see a lot of – a lot of famous people around in uh, in Philly. I was like, that that might be the one. I, when I saw him, I was like, okay, that's a step up. That's uh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> he, he is a step up over Kevin Hart. Yes. Yes. Who was also out there, I believe, right? Yeah. yeah. He's watching basketball. Watching him stand next to Embiid is pretty funny. Yes. Uh, he was in the locker room a lot in the playoff run last year, and I had that that exact same takeaway. Uh, I'm sure he did too. Um, anyway, we're a little bit off track here. So let's see, where do we want to go next? I guess I don't really. Okay, so going to do a lot of round of league stuff. The, the trade deadline's coming up. A big trade has just happened. Not just happened, a couple of days ago now. But before we get into that, they've experimented a little bit. First Landry Shaman at the point, then Jimmy Butler at the point. I guess what are your thoughts on how that has looked and how whether or not that's the right move going forward, because I don't really want to get too deep into some of the rotation issues because there's only really one more game left where that should be a factor. Like our, the rotations could change very dramatically after the Toronto game, but overall your thoughts on how Butler has looked at the point and what that means going forward. First off, Landry Shamit, uh, that chase down block four point <laughs> yes. play combination. I don't think anybody in the end, like, we're talking Hall of Famers might not have a better sequence than that in their career. That was awesome. I told him that after the game too. I was like, "Did you did you realize you you kind of look like uh, LeBron, LeBron chasing down Iggy?" Yeah. yeah, he was like, "Yeah, I gotta let people know I can I can jump a little bit." Uh, <laughs> Quinn Cook, not exactly Iggy in the open court, but what are you gonna do? <laughs> uh, so yeah, he's he got a little bit of run in. The uh, the Denver game, which honestly you kind of throw that one away. I, th- that one didn't really matter. The uh, the Jimmy stuff was interesting because it seemed like they really were just running spread pick and roll for him, and they basically had four shooters around around him and Joel. And you know I don't think that's why they won the Lakers game, but it was interesting for sure. Uh, it, it's certainly a different offense than what the Sixers run. I don't know if it's the best use of JJ's skill set to have him standing in the corner. You kind of want his movement. You notice the other three off-ball guys are kind of uh, stagnant, but I don't. I, you know, it, it also creates some issues in the rotation because I think it was JJ and Ben were in there, and that was when the Lakers went on that 18-0 run, which was pretty ridiculous to win a game in which you give up. Uh, I think they won by like 15 or 16 to win a game comfortably in which you give up an 18 0 run. is pretty funny. The, uh, I, I think what, what you're kind of asking, I'm not sure is, is what should they do with TJ? And <laughs> I gotta be honest, man. Like I love TJ. Uh, 
I know that in the past he like I he almost swung that Boston playoff series. That that was a fact. For some reason, going from from Covington to him like just totally injected the team with life. Another ball handler just helped that much. I'm sorry, he kills the offense. Kills sure. them. And, so, and when you when you play him with Simmons, it's just it doesn't work. So so basically, my thing is. If you're committed to giving Butler some point guard minutes, and I thought that looked, you know, worthwhile enough to keep trying, then it finds it becomes really hard to find minutes for him if you're pairing uh, Jimmy and Joel up like that. Yeah. So what? You know, we're basically talking about a two game stretch uh, against the Lakers against the Warriors, where they ran some Jimmy at the point. And was, we're talking about a total of like 15 minutes, which is pretty irrelevant in the grand scheme of things, but it was about a quarter of Butler's minutes during those two games. So there, it's relevant if it is a status quo going forward. And it wasn't against the Kings because they had, you know, Reddick and Chandler out and, and your rotations completely changed after that. Um, then you have to play TJ. Right. So what was interesting, you know, TJ's minutes went down from about 25 to 19, which you would expect. But his minutes alongside Ben Simmons actually went up. So in the 28 games prior to that, he had played 12 and a half minutes per game with Ben. In those two games, he was playing 14 and a half minutes per game with Ben. And that's just too much. Twelve and a half is way too much. TJ and Ben together. Fourteen and a half is is going in the wrong direction. And I think part of that, in, and this is in part why I said like almost ignore the current rotation issues because they just don't have enough wings. If you're going to say, okay, well, Jimmy's going to be on the court without a point guard, that means you have to surround that with three other wing players. You don't have enough wing minutes to then go in and fill in the rest of those minutes without some lineups that you would like to avoid. And that's where hopefully, like, maybe you get a trade for Garrett Temple. Maybe you sign Wes Matthews on the buyout market, and they can correct some of that. But if this is going to happen, and I think it's probably the right way to go, given the current personnel and given what's on the market. Like, I think it's going to be easier to get a wing than it is going to be to get a point guard. You know, I think this could – yeah, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago in a – I think it was in a Stat of the Week article about Butler's low usage with Joel Embiid on the court. And I think this is a way where you can put as much shooting around that pick and roll tandem while also maybe keeping, you know, I think the, I think that's one interesting aspect of it, put shooting around pick and roll of with Joel Embiid and you don't have Simmons or, or McConnell there to, you know, clog the paint. And right now that's not a hundred percent true because you just have Corey Brewer in there to clog the paint. Um, sure. They don't have the wing depth to, to fix that issue. Poor Corey. Yeah. <laughs> um, who's by the way, I think, I think, Today might be. It's his last I think day. He's, yeah, so it'll be interesting. I, my gut, and it's just a gut. This isn't. Um, this isn't sourced at all. Is they might let you know go into that Toronto game shorthanded just because it's the last one before the trade deadline. Um, you know, so in, in theory you could put three shooters around them. You could also keep it where you have a big player at point guard. So if you have the wing depth, you can have a. It's it's easier to maximize your switchability if you're not putting TJ out there as the backup point guard. Um. And also, I think, and this, I don't think this is a small part of it at all, you can keep Jimmy Butler engaged a little bit more. You know, he has, this isn't a new thing where Jimmy Butler likes running the offense, likes being the point guard. You go back to some of his discussions with Fred Hoiberg, and he came in there at, I forget if it was 2015, 16, or before one of the seasons, maybe 2016, 17, where he, he said, look, I put in a lot of work in my ball handling and my shooting off the dribble. Like, I, I want to play point guard. This is, is he, he enjoys that aspect. He enjoys having that responsibility. If you can give him seven to seven to eight minutes per game where he's doing that, and that will help keep him engaged and happy with his role and also maximize the Joel Embiid 
Jimmy Butler pick and roll and maybe help your defense, it makes sense. But it, you have to get more depth to do it. You have to minimize TJ's role. And I, I say that, and it's easy to root for TJ while also acknowledging his shortcomings. Um, but we, I mean, go back to listen to our podcast before the season. We said if, if uh, TJ McConnell is playing major minutes and on the team the following season, then something really bad went wrong. And, and here we are with Markell, and we'll see whether that gets resolved this week. But I think it makes sense. I'm not sure it's going to be all that effective right now. If you look at the numbers, it hasn't been. Um, the Sixers have actually outscored in those 15 minutes. They've outscored opponents 30 to 21. It's mostly because their defense has been really good, and also the other team has missed shots. I think they're shooting 0% from three-point range, which probably isn't going to keep going. Part of the offensive problem is that Joel Embiid has been a turnover machine, but also Jimmy Butler, he just hasn't looked aggressive yet. And if I'm sitting here saying, like, this is how you maximize Jimmy Butler, Joel Embiid pick and roll, well, in those 15 minutes, he's 0 for 4 from the field. Um, you need more attempts. You need more aggressiveness. And he just hasn't really created space off the pick and roll like you would expect. And that's not really Jimmy Butler's game. Like, he hasn't, he's not a speed demon coming off the pick and roll. He doesn't come flying off that corner. He's not a, you know, real, he can pull up and shoot, but he's not, he's not that kind of guy that you have to defend 24 feet from the hoop and you're scared that he, he'll pull up. Like, his, he's, has such good strength and body control and touch that he can find sort of those crevices and get into the paint. And he hasn't been as aggressive as I think you would ideally want. And I wonder if part of that's just coming back from the wrist. I wonder if part of that is, you know, this is sort of his first taste at running the offense. So he's going to defer a little more than he will in a month or two. I think that's probably a big part of it, but if this is going to be the status quo going forward, you hope to see more. And quite frankly, I think you will see more. So, We'll see. It's very initial impressions. I think my biggest takeaway is I'm glad they're experimenting with it. Yeah, like you, I, I haven't been totally impressed by his feel running the pick and roll. It seems like a lot of times he's just he's already made up his mind that he's going to drive to pass. And a lot of times to me, it, it's not when you do that, that, that kick out pass isn't creating an advantageous situation where somebody can attack a closeout or something like that. I will say, at the end of that Kings game... Oh, he was on fire. That was pretty good. Now, part of that was because he was sh- actually shooting threes, right. shooting catch-and-shoot threes, which he just won't do. I, I think the first two threes of that run there in the fourth quarter were, were both off dribble handoffs, too, which he allegedly does not prefer. Um, yeah, uh, we'll see. and you know, you know, we'll see. The uh, Again, I thought his, especially in the Golden State game, I thought he was like a disaster running those plays. Uh, there was a play at the end of the first quarter where I think he dumped it off like to somebody entirely too late, like totally on unac- sounding like Jim Lynham, totally unacceptable uh, decision making from Jimmy there. So yeah, I, I I agree with you. It doesn't look good to me. It doesn't look like it's a, it's a finished product yet. But I'm glad that we're seeing it because, like you said, their defense has been good with those lineups. And I, I don't think that's entirely a mistake because, I, you know, what, what's the configuration out there? It's Jimmy, oh, yeah, look, Corey. Usually Jimmy, usually Jimmy and one of J.J. or Landry. And Corey, then Corey Brewer, Wilson, Wilson Jane, and Joe. Yeah. That's pretty good defensively. Yep. So, yeah, and, and you like that group. That, that group can switch a lot of things. I thought uh, quickly, I, I wrote about this on the post at The Athletic yesterday. Jimmy's off-ball defense in that Kings game was a joke, how bad it was. Um, yeah, it was not great. 
and that's a big reason they lost it. But I, you know, I don't want to harp too much on that game because honestly, and by the we, way, Jimmy we have Butler, good over his last five is averaging twenty five and six point two assists. So he's and, and that game against the uh, against the Kings helps that. Um, he was struggling. He, he's been very up and down. I guess is the way I would say. Yeah. The. Uh, and I don't want to get too too down on the game against the Kings because to me that's just a classic, I don't know, game at the end of the road trip. JJ didn't play, didn't shoot well, still really had a chance to win that game after making a lot of mistakes and didn't get it done. And that, that happens on an NBA calendar. After watching them get their butts kicked by Cleveland and Washington, you know, earlier this year, that's one I think you can live with. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's go around the league. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, Robin Hood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, options, cryptocurrencies, and ETFs, and all commission-free, whereas other brokerages can charge up to $10 per trade. Robinhood strives to make financial services for everyone, a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time and with true confidence. With Robinhood, you learn by doing, as they let you discover new stocks and track favorite companies with your own personalized newsfeed, and you receive custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right time to invest. Trading platforms require a lot of information to be available to you for your decision, and if not done properly, that information can be overwhelming. If you've tried to dip your hands into the stock market before and have found it difficult to keep up, give Robinhood a try. Having used a number of different apps before, I can truthfully say that Robinhood is the most accessible app I've ever used, as they present the information clearly with everything you need at the touch of a button, but without overwhelming you in the process. And with the benefit of being commission-free, Robinhood is an easy recommendation to give. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at sixers.robinhood.com. That's sixers.robinhood.com. I guess first off, the Chris Tapps Porzingis trade. And I think my – so part of it is that when it, the news first broke, it was, you know – Obviously, you knew about the cap ramifications and getting off the contracts that they did. And that's a that's still the most important factor of this deal. But they then – it went from Dennis Smith and a first-round pick to Dennis Smith and two first-round picks. And also, oh, by the way, that one pick is unprotected in 2021. And then you started hearing about Porzingis allegedly you know, suggesting that he might take the qualifying offer next year, which – I still don't buy. Uh, nobody has ever turned down the amount of money he would be turning down to take the qualifying offer um, and coming off of a year and a half where he wasn't playing. I would have called his bluff on that. But it it made a lot more sense what the Knicks did. And now I look at it, and for a player, you know, they were in a tough spot, I think. And for a player who didn't really want to be there, who would have been a restricted free agent if he if he didn't take the qualifying offer and an unrestricted the following year if he did, you know, they were in that tough spot where it's like, well, are you comfortable paying him that contract? And are you comfortable letting him walk for nothing? And neither of those were necessarily great. So I really came – the more I thought about it, the more I came around on it from the Knicks' perspective. It sort of sucks that if, you, if you're a Knicks fan, which I'm not, um, but it sort of sucks that your years of organizational incompetence, you know, cost you a franchise player. But given the situation they were in, I mean, that Tim Hardaway Jr. contract existed. It was always going to exist. Um, I do think they will be a better draw in free agency 
with two max slots than it would have been with Porzingis and one max slot. I think that kind of the ability to play GM appeals to people like Kevin Durant. And I think this is a big free agency for them because if you look at 2020 free agency, it's not nearly as strong. It's not nearly as deep. It doesn't have the high-end talent. So I think they need to maximize their odds this summer. Uh, it will be interesting to see how that impacts, how successful they are. I do think some people are, you know, they saw what happened in L.A. with LeBron, and I think that's a little more repeatable. And I don't think, you know, Steve Mills is Magic Johnson. I don't think, um, I think LeBron with um I don't think his James interest, Dolan is Jeannie Buss. No. And I think LeBron with his interest outside of basketball and L.A. with what it can offer outside of basketball is pretty unique. And I think it takes a, a someone, you know, you're talking about, a star going to a Blake Canvas team. I think it takes a player that's pretty unique and pretty comfortable in his position in the league to do that. And LeBron might be a unique situation there. But I, I give them credit for going for the home run, and they got some draft picks, with which helped mitigate that risk. The interesting thing to me is how this impacts the Sixers. And the immediate impact is that players like DeAndre Jordan and Wes Matthews will be on the buyout market. And I, th- I think it's much more likely they get bought out than traded because you can't aggregate their salary. They're both big salary players. The Knicks don't want to take anyone back that will extend beyond this season. So I think it's most likely they get bought out. And I think the Sixers should be at the top of Wes Matthews' list, and I think Wes Matthews should be at the top of the Sixers' list. So I think that's a very natural pairing. Um, I think the Sixers have a lot of minutes and a lot of money to offer someone like that. But you start looking beyond that, and I, I promise this won't be a 20-minute monologue about the New York Knicks um, is how that impacts Sixers cap money. And, you know, now you're looking at it, New York with two max slots is more of a threat than New York with one max slot and Dallas with one max slot. Like that is there, there's more, the, 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 the Sixers will have more competition in free agency. You can make an easy case why a free agent should choose you over the Dallas Mavericks. It's a tougher sell why the free agent should choose you over the New York Knicks with Kevin Durant, if that ends up coming true. So I think it devalues the Sixers' cap space a little bit. And you look at where the Sixers stand now, you've got New York with two max slots, Brooklyn with two max slots, the Lakers with a max slot, and the Clippers with, I forget if they have one or two max slots available, at least one max slot available. And there's a lot of competition out there for these free agents. It's a deep class, but there's a lot of competition with a lot of what you would call a glamour destination. And I think that does devalue the Sixers cap space a little bit. And it'll be interesting to see whether or not that changes how they act here in the coming days leading up to free agency and also how they act in the summer when they have to use this money. So are you saying that they might want to acquire some money, some future I mean, money, if it if it helps them more this year? It's a great question. I don't know where my... You know, because I still... Uh, I still, even if it's just clearing money and going out and getting Malcolm Brogdon, I still have interest in that. Like, if you're asking me, would I rather have Malcolm Brogdon over the next five years or Kent Bazemore? Like, I'll take Brogdon. Malcolm Brogdon becoming a cult hero for the Sixers would be one of the funniest things ever. <laughs> well, Spike would have a chance to boo him this time since he wasn't playing the last time they 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 bust out there or flew out there. Um, it's an itching dilemma, like. Clearly for the Clay Thompsons and the, um, you know, that level of a fringe, Kevin Durant, um, you're not Kawhi Leonard. Like, that's where I think the New York and L.A. is going to be really tricky. Like, I don't think the Sixers, I'd love to be wrong, but I don't think the Sixers are going to be in position for those guys. 
But would you take a Kent Bazemore instead of having a chance at Tobias Harris or Malcolm Brogdon or Chris Middleton? Uh, and what are your chance at those three guys? I don't. That that's a that's a great question. That's a fascinating question, There's and that's one the Sixers have to answer very quickly. But it's like you said. You you mentioned all of the max cap slots that are available. There's going to be a ton of competition for those guys too. I also wonder if Chris Middleton's going to go anywhere. I feel like the Bucks, having a wildly successful year, are just going to max him out because they really don't have a choice. Uh, besides that, we'll we'll see what happens there. Uh, as far as the Knicks are concerned with that trade, to me, it just seems like they're paying for their uh, their past sins of oh boy, are they Whew. giving and giving Hardaway and Lee too much too many years? Just yeah, can't have that. No, and that's that's part of the the, the dangerous waters of six. Not the same, and that's part of you know we talk a lot about do Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid get along. And that's a you know that's a, a question you ask because the consequences are so severe. And like I mean, Brett Brown has said this like that's on his mind, not because it necessarily means like they're fighting in the locker room, but because he wants to make sure that it never gets to that point. But I'd much rather have that conversation than the are we wasting a franchise player's prime, or at least are we disenfranchising a franchise player uh, because he is not having I mean, a young player forcing his way off of a team on his rookie contract. That's very rare, and you have to really screw up in a lot of different ways to get to this point. And that's why, to me, it would be frustrating if I was a Knicks fan, even if I understand the logic behind the the trade, because they've screwed up so badly and for so long that they got to this point, and it's amazing. It's Yeah, it's it's more logical from this point, but why are you at this point? Right. Everybody looked, and that's part of, you know, the... You want to have confidence in Knicks front office, and yeah, maybe they should get a chance to capitalize on this shrewd move, but it's still Steve Mills who gave Tim Hardaway Jr. that four-year, 71 million contract that everybody in the NBA knew was a bad contract. Like, if they strike out on their top targets, are they going to be responsible with this cap space? I don't know. But it also shows that the Sixers, especially as that it becomes more competitive with that cap space, they really have to be smart with the decisions they make because it's real easy to talk yourself into, well, Look, here's this marginal role player. He would, he, he'd legitimately help us over the next couple of years, but you can't price it. You can't do whatever it takes to get these guys because you end up with contracts like Tim Hardaway Jr. Um, you have to, it, it, it's, it's, you can get some real negative assets real quickly if you're not careful. So they will have their work cut out for them. Th- think about the Knicks sales pitch to KD and Kyrie. It's like, yeah, we have two max cap slots, but by the way, when we try and build a team around you, uh, Six point four million dollars is earmarked for Joakim Noah's ghost. <laughs> right, right. For the next three fucking years. <laughs> are you? Oh, they're so bad. The uh, yeah, yeah, they are. Oh my god. Although I, you know, and again, this is this is turning into to Rumorville, but uh, it it wouldn't be terrible if Kyrie wasn't on the Celtics anymore for the Sixers. I don't. No, I don't think and that that's was, wrong to say. No. No, and this, I mean, this is, this is where the Sixers, because they're locked in with Joel Embiid for the next four years, because they got restricted rights on Ben Simmons, unless you really screw this up, he should be with the team for the next six years. And to have that core in place with two players who, one is already top 10, one of them should be in the top 10, you, you, you think can get in there relatively easily. To have a core with two top 10 players in place, a little anarchy in the league isn't the worst thing in the world especially when one of them's 
you know, the two rumored players, one's coming from the best sustained success in the salary cap era of the NBA, like just a, a true juggernaut. The other is coming from your main rival. Like a little anarchy when you have your core in place like that. Yeah, it's going to devalue your cap space. But if there's one team that can withstand that, I think it's the Sixers and the future they have set up um, because of, 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 of the high star level talent they have locked in for a long time. So, yeah, not the worst thing in the world. Uh, as a quick aside, too, I, I thought it was interesting the other night after the game, Brett said, I think that when we don't boast a team fully of health, we're vulnerable. And that's the death, depth issue we speak of from time to time. And he said, he, you know, he was asked, are you looking forward to getting home? And he said, I look forward to health more than home. <laughs> the uh, that's, that's another great Brett Brown quote. But I do think that kind of shows you that he realizes, like, yeah, whatever is going to happen over the next couple of days, we're going to get some reinforcements here, and things are going to look better for our bench come, I guess, Friday when they play the Nuggets. If you know if they can get everybody signed by then, but at least you know, you know, by next week at some point. Uh, as far as the uh, as the Davis thing ha- is concerned, though, where uh, what, what do you make of that whole thing? Because I mean, what what a mess! It seems like. He's just him and Rich Paul are just trying to get to L.A. And, man, L.A., I look, I saw those guys live and in person. Brandon Ingram might have played the best game of his life. I don't want those guys. No, no, they, they do not have the trade chips they think they do. And, you know, in a, a weird way, I think what Rich Paul is doing is helping the Boston Celtics out a lot. Because right now the Los Angeles Lakers are acting like a team who feels like they have all of the leverage in the world. And they have that leverage because Rich Paul is going out there and telling all the other teams, look, he's a rental if he comes to your team. So he's depressing all of the other offers around the league. That's making the Lakers feel like they're in a position of strength, because they are. But I think that also increases the chance that the Pelicans don't do anything at this deadline and and try to go into the summer and reignite talks then. And if that happens, you know, a lot of the NBA nowadays is bluffing and calling people on their bullshit. And if there's one GM that I think is capable of calling Rich Paul on his nonsense, it's going to be Danny Ainge. And I think in part of that, because this is this feels like what Danny Ainge has been building up to his entire executive career. Like it feels like every move he's made up to this point is to get Anthony Davis. And... I don't think he's going to sit this one out. Like I think this is where he he really takes all of those trade chips and those assets and those young players and those draft picks. And he has some pretty good draft picks too. Like they have the Memphis pick coming up as well. They're decent. They're not they're not quite as good as we once thought they would be though. No, thanks but to, we'll see thanks what to those Sacramento Kings. Thanks to the Kings, but also the Memphis pick if they trade Conley and Gasol could end up being pretty good. Yeah. Um but I, I don't think he's going to sit this one out. And you look back on his history, and I think it's really easy to forget this now. But if you look at that team before they acquired Kevin Garnett, you know you had Paul Pierce who wanted out. He wanted to be traded. You had Kevin Garnett who di- who refused a trade to the, the the Celtics. Like they were talking about trading for him. He said no, I don't want to be there. They pulled back. So you had a team that was like within days of being broken up and rebuilding. And then he goes out, he acquires Ray Allen without having a commitment from either Pierce or Garnett. 
He then acquires Garnett, who will now accept that trade, and everything flips. I think we look at some of these these preferences, these demands coming from agents and athletes, and I think we look at them as being set in stone. And a lot of times, one domino falls and everything changes. And I think, you know, I think especially if they don't get to an NBA Finals, I think Danny Ainge is the type where he's going to say, like, look, you can tell me that you're not going to resign here, but I'm going to trade for you. I'm going to re- that trade will cause Kyrie Irving to stay and resign. We're going to make a run to the NBA Finals. Walk away from that. I think I think Danny Ainge will do that, and I think in part because he's done that in the past, and also because I think that the interest in AD and the uniqueness of it is an opportunity he's not going to pass up. So I think I think what Rich Paul is doing, I think right now the Lakers feel like that gives them an advantage. But I think if they overplay their hand, I think it might work right into the Celtics' favor. Which God, uh, can you imagine Kyrie and AD versus Simmons and Embiid for the next half decade. That would be fun. That would be fun. I, I wouldn't be loving it if I was the Sixers, though. That would be <laughs> – I mean, it would be a lot of fun for us to watch for sure. Uh, yeah, it seems like – God, it seems like Boston has just turned into the big swing team now where – not to say they wouldn't have anything because, you know, they have all these good younger players, even if Tatum is – Maybe not taking the step forward that some thought before the year. But, I mean, they could be like a complete juggernaut, or they could be without Kyrie or AD at some point. Yeah. So, yep. They're, uh, it, it was – I'll say this. It, a, a lot of people were kind of talking up how much the NBA was dominating the headlines on Super Bowl week. And I, I think, to be clear, you know, a lot of people watch the Super Bowl. Uh, right. even, even if the storylines aren't that interesting, the uh, I'm sure the NBA would take the Super Bowl television ratings in a heartbeat. So, like, I don't want to make it like a, a please like my sport type of thing, but it really was such a crazy week for the NBA. There was, it just felt like there was a, a new trade or a rumor or Anthony Davis comparing his son to Isaiah Thomas some for some reason. <laughs> uh, every few minutes, it was it was great. Bravo. Hope this week is just as much fun. All right. We have, first of all, we just have a tweet from Woj where beyond the Lakers and the Knicks, the Pelicans have been made aware of a handful of teams that Anthony Davis would be willing to sign long-term with. Upon a trade, league sources tell ESPN (laughs) Boston isn't included in that list. I mean, mean, he would sign with some teams, but Boston's not one of them. Well, what are the teams? Well, we're not saying. Yeah. I mean, that's that's true, too. But it also, you wonder if whether or not they realize that that depressed the market so far where AD is going to end up spending the rest of the season in uh, in New Orleans where he doesn't want to be and where they don't want him anymore. So maybe maybe that's that. Yeah, we'll see. By the way, that's a little bit of a problem. I mean, part? as a league, I, I understand the the level of, of interest and in trades and everything is awesome. I I'm all for players you know, taking matters into their own hands and taking their own lives and careers into their own hands. Uh, if AD sits out the whole rest of the year, that's not great. Just no, because that's not great. Just because he demanded a trade and they want to tank. That's not awesome. And I, I tend to fall on the side of players a lot in these. Like, they have so little control over where they play. First of all, AD's underpaid, which sounds ridiculous, but it's true. And they have so little control over where they pay, where, play, where they're drafted to, where they're traded to, that I, I, I don't begrudge them for taking matters into their own hand, but it is a tough situation for 
fans to be in, for the team to be in, for AD to be in. That And it, it seems like more and more nowadays, which is partly why the Porzingis thing was so surprising, because it went from like meeting to trade in like two hours. And not, you just don't see that very often anymore. It seems like nowadays it's more like this is going to drag out and they're going to try to ex- you know exert every level of um, control they have over a situation. Um, not to Bryce Harper levels, but long enough where things drag on. And that, that can get awkward for sure. For sure. All right. All right so done? real quick, because we have, we have, well, there you go, real quick thoughts. We, we do. We have a, a, a thing to be at in 12 minutes. Real quick before we go though, about the trade deadline, general thoughts, where you see them like to go, what you see them like to prioritize. And if you have any predictions on what that might be. I think they'll pri- prioritize wings in general of some sort, kind of the three, four, type players uh, to to just increase switchability and, and hopefully three-point shooting. Uh, I do think they're going to be aggressive. I uh, like. I think they're one of the teams where it makes sense for them to dangle a first-round pick for the right player. I, I think that they, uh, you know, we, we mentioned this a little bit earlier, on the buyout market they're going to be they're probably going to get the best player on the buyout market if it's as long as it isn't a point guard or or maybe a backup center or somebody. Yeah, like DeAndre, I don't think they'll be in a running for because why would DeAndre want to go to a place where he can play twelve minutes a night? Yeah, and God, he would be really good. I mean, imagine instead turning the uh, the Butler point guard minutes to DeAndre as kind of the the role man and getting lobs. That would be awesome. I don't think he would would sign here for that though. So yeah, I, if I were to to predict, I would say they will trade a first round pick of some sort. They will add a a wing, kind of one type of four man type of person, and and one wing. So I don't know with players. There's a lot. I mean, God, you've mentioned a bunch of them. You mentioned Garrett Temple, Kent Bazemore. I, I'm not even sure they're going to have to go into the uh, you know adding future salary. We'll see about that, but. I don't know. I for some reason I'm feel, I'm definitely feeling that Wesley Matthews is going to be the buyout guy. I, I think they you know they have their full mid level to offer. They also have more money, which is which is nice. And as far as somebody they're going to trade for, for some reason I think Nikola Mirotic is going to be a Sixer next week. Yeah, that's kind of like my sneaking worry. And look, Mirotic is good. He's a he's a very good version of a player I don't really like. You know, we we talk about one position defenders at all. I think with uh, with Dario, we kind of talked about a point five position defender. He's like a point two five position defender. He really doesn't <laughs> you're like you're not if you're going to put a lineup with him out there and Embiid out there because they don't like to switch Embiid and JJ Redick out there. Like you're talking about a lot of stuff you can't switch, and I worry about that in the playoffs. Um, but he is a very good version of that player that they have gravitated towards in the past. You know, they have. I mean, they acquired. Um, they acquired um, the, the the. While you think of the name, though, I, I do think that he might be, he might be more available, like without giving up a first round pick. Like I think if they were going to do that and were to get aggressive, I I would think Baysmore would be a logical candidate, or yeah. or somebody like that, somebody with longer years, somebody who's more of a switch type player, maybe Torian Prince, maybe. Uh, but I mean, they they, they acquired. <laughs> Ersan Ilyasova, who I was thinking of. They acquired Ilyasova twice, two different times, and Brett really 
liked those lineups where he had a stretch four alongside of Embiid. And I worry a little bit that they're going to go out there and prioritize Miritich. Like I said, he's a good version of a player that I'm not thrilled with. I would probably rather see them go like a Garrett Temple type in a trade and then a Wes Matthews in a buyout. Maybe something like that. It would make sense to, to me before you get to Deadman because if you get two wings, I think Wilson is okay playing a lot of four. Yeah, and Ben can defend the four too. Yeah. yeah. No, I've always I've always wanted them to go in a, a maximize ball handlers, maximize shooting, maximize switching, get as many perimeter wing players as you can get. Um, I think this is their opportunity to do that. We'll see what they actually do. Deadman's interesting. Um, you know, I think because I think first of all, I think one thing we didn't talk about. Jonah Bolden's playing well, and he's playing really well defensively. They put him primarily at the five spot, um, whereas a lot of earlier in the season he was playing at the four. They kind of swapped um, Muscala and Bolden's roles. And, you know, I think he's played well, but I'm not sure they're going to rely on a rookie big man to be their primary backup five in the playoffs. Like, that's a big ask for them. So I think Deadman's a pretty interesting person where you can – he still gives you some stretching. He still, if you haven't noticed Dwayne Dedman's progression over the last two years, go go check out his, you know, basketball reference page. I mean, this was a guy who was shooting in the high fifties, low sixties from the free throw line when he was here during that cup of coffee back in 2013, 14. He has shot 37% from three point range over nearly 300 attempts over the last two seasons. He's shooting 30. 8% from three-point range this year, shooting 82% from the free-throw line. He's completely changed his, um, you know, his shooting profile. And it, he can give you a little, he, he, he doesn't, he'll give you a little bit, not a lot on either side, but he'll give you a little bit of something on both sides. I could see them replacing Bolden's center minutes with somebody like that as well. And as much as I like Jonah Bolden, I think what I've gathered from the last couple of weeks of his play is that, first of all, I like him at the five spot better, and I think that you have a backup five now going forward. I have more confidence that you have a backup five going forward than I had two months ago. But I'm not. I'm just not sure they're ready to rely on that in the NBA Finals in 2019. So we will see if he is a target as well. Yeah. I do, th- and, I do um, think they're going to be aggressive, though. Like two or three players they, they will add oh, yeah. this week. Nope. All right, so so I'm trying to read every Woj tweet that comes out right now so I know whether or not we can actually end this podcast. Uh, eh, we can always just release another one. Thank you, Rich, for jumping on, and we will talk to you soon. <laughs> See you, man. Contact that I attract clientele. My mic check is life or death, breathing the sniper's breath. I exhale.